I love what they just sang. Praise God, praise God. I attended the play. I'm supposed to be back Wednesday night, so maybe I'll play Wednesday night on the saxophone. A while ago, they mentioned there's visitors here. I welcome you. I'm thrilled for all of the regulars that are here. Trust me, I'm not the pastor. Y'all have got a wonderful pastor here. He's a great preacher. And he's away on vacation, and I'm glad that he is because that's extremely important to take time off. Even Jesus, in his three and a third years of ministry on the face of this earth, took time off to rest. And I think that's important. I'm going to just try to jump right into my message tonight. I want to put my title on the screen. Once you open your Bible, if you, or if you want to use your phone or however you do it, John chapter 1. I'm just going to read one verse. Verse number 46. St. John chapter 1 and verse 46. This is what it says. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth he's referring to Jesus Christ can any good thing come out of Nazareth and Philip saith unto him come and see I want to preach from this subject tonight don't cheat yourself turn around to somebody and look them direct in the eye and tell them don't cheat yourself and then you may be seated Don't cheat yourself. I need to set this phone where I'll know what time it is because I don't want to go too long. Because Kevin Cox likes food and I like fireworks. <laughs> but I'll tell you what else I like. I hope there's somebody that when I finish tonight feels your need to be in this altar getting more of God. Can I have a witness to that? The year that I graduated high school, I'll tell you when it was, 1973, I had to think for a minute. I had a scholarship to go to a college called Central Missouri State University. My dad was pastoring Jefferson City, Missouri, and so it was almost a full scholarship, just like very little. And I lived in the dorm. It was 100 miles from home. I drove a 66 Volkswagen a $300 car. It probably, dad bought it, he probably got to it at $300. <laughs> if you think a 66 Volkswagen Beetle is a wonderful car, that's just one step above walking. <laughs> and in Missouri in the wintertime, it gets cold. And by the way, those cars were air-cooled motors so it wouldn't heat up enough in the wintertime that you had heat. And who needs heat in the summer anytime? It did have a little heater, but it only worked in kind of moderate weather, not in, <laughs> not in cold weather. No options at all. Going up hills, you'd had to downshift even with it on the floor. Uh, and that's what I drove to college. The battery in it was going bad. But I was an old country kid, and I knew that all you had to do was park on a hill, 
got ready to leave, just let it just kind of start rolling a little bit, put it in second gear, and then pop the clutch out, and you go right on ahead. That worked until I got up one morning, and there was about six to eight inches of snow on the ground, and I tried it, and all I'd do was my tires would slide. <laughs> I had to go talk one of my buddies into jumping me off. College was quite a situation for me. It was an eye-opener. I earned the nickname Preach because everywhere I went, not at class, but I'm talking about I had my Bible with me. And believe it or not, those fellows who were very worldly, ultimately every decision, every discussion they got into came back to the Word of God. And they'd come to me because they knew I had a Bible and I had to be the arbitrator and the judge of what was right and wrong. And it made me start studying. Some of those same fellas in that dormitory I lived in, particularly at the first before they started laying us homework to us and all, they, they wanted to get out and play Monopoly. I loved to play Monopoly and I was good at it. What I wasn't good at is watching people who cheated we always played correctly. We were taught you don't cheat. Those guys had slipped money out of the bank. They'd slip stuff underneath the table. It was, I don't like getting cheated. Hello. I, I'm, I've, I've dealt a lot of cars in my life, and most of the time I was happy. There's a few times I felt like I got cheated. Anybody in here ever get the feeling you were cheated on something? It's not a good feeling. It really isn't. And if you're a cheater, it doesn't take long until you get a reputation. That guy's a cheater. The fellow that lived in the room right next to me, we had to share bathrooms. He was a product of St. Louis, Missouri growing up on the streets, and he was a rough character. He'd cheat in everything he could cheat. You knew he'd steal anything you had and everything else. You don't want a reputation like that. I'm just being honest. Amazingly, I just read to you where a man who was being introduced to Jesus made this statement, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because that area had earned a reputation that people from there probably weren't who you wanted to associate with. I'm expecting most of you out here have grown up in the country, small towns. That's how I've grown up. My first five years in St. Louis, I really don't remember much about that. After that, it was Vichy, where my daddy took the church. The town population sign said 52. You, it doesn't take long when you are in a small town. You know everybody there and their reputation. Hello. And I found this out. Bad reputation is a result of repeated actions that shouldn't be. In the Bible, when I say the name Sodom and Gomorrah, two different cities... It doesn't take long until you get that gut feeling of, I wouldn't want to be there. Hello. It's a horrible place. 
And yet it was that when Lot and Abraham, relatives, Abraham had taken Lot under his wing, so to speak, and they had left their homeland and they're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And the book of Hebrews said they didn't quite get there at that point, but they were out there and both of them, their flocks and their herdsmen were increasing and they realized they both couldn't be together in the same spot because the, the herdsmen began to fight together. And so Abraham, in his generosity, he says to Lot, you separate, take whatever portion you want, I'll go to the other. And the Bible said that Lot looked and saw the well-watered plains of Jordan and decided they had a reputation down there. You can get good grass for your flocks, etc. He said, I'll take that one. I don't know what happened. The Bible is silent on what happened between there until the next thing you read is that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. It was, in my mind, a bad choice. I promise you that as long as he was near Sodom, he was bound to have heard the reputation of Sodom. But it's never a good idea to move to a place like that that has a bad reputation, particularly when God's not in it. Wow. You say, how bad was it, Brother Cox? Well, when he moved in there, the Bible said some strange men came to visit Lot. They were men sent from God. Perhaps they were angels. And the men of Sodom saw them go in and said, we want them. And I'm being careful because I'm in a mixed audience tonight. You don't understand what I'm talking about. Understand these people were perverted and they wanted to have their perverted ways with those men. That's horrible to think you can't even have a guest in your home and they're wanting to do something horrible to them on the outside. What happened? All of that livestock and all those servants that Lot had. In other words, in my opinion, I can't prove this other than opinion. But I, I mean, just common sense tells you evidently Lot made a bad decision and sold all of that so he could live in town. Because you can't raise cattle, you can't raise sheep, goats, whatever it was, camels or anything else if you're living in town. Evidently sold out. It's a dangerous thing when you sell out outside of the will of God. Because those men had been sent from God, those angels sent from God, if you will, to tell Lot, God is getting ready to destroy these two cities because of their wickedness. And we're going to get you out of here. And so that when that destruction comes, they're leading them out of that way. And it's only people leaving her, Lot and his wife and two daughters. <sighs> I, I, again, using common sense, he evidently had some daughters because he had son-in-laws that were destroyed in the destruction. They had fallen in love with an area of a bad reputation. This is not all horrible where I'm headed. I'm just laying some groundwork for you. And when their wife, Lot's wife, 
heard what was going on, she turned around and looked back. I don't think it was just a glance. I think it was a desire that was in her. And God instantly turned her into a pillar of salt. I, I, I mean, that's quick judgment. But it was the desire for things that are horrible. All of that. I wonder if Lot's thinking about how he got cheated. Because he did have herds. He had wealth. He had servants. And now all he has is the clothes on his back, if you will, and two daughters following him. And they're telling him, we want to take you over here. He said, oh, I don't want to go there. Let me go to that little town up there called Zoar. He didn't live there very long and realized that wasn't good either. And so he winds up in a barren place, in a horrible place, if you will, in the mountain area around there. I've seen some of that area. At least they tell us that's the area of where it was. No one would want to live there. And he's with his two daughters. And because they were in a horrible city, they came up with the idea that if we're going to have some children, it's going to have to be through daddy. And they got him drunk and wound up themselves children that were sired by their own father. I don't know how much lower you can get than that. When they had those children, they named them Moab and Benami. Those men became the heads of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And if you've been into church very long at all and read much of that Old Testament, you'll realize that the Moabites and the Ammonites continued to be a thorn into the side of God's people, the Israelites. Bible said in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in a country of Moab. Why would you choose Moab? Oh, I know there's famine here, but why would you go to Moab? I just told you where the Moabites came from. The name of that man was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi and had sons, Malan and Kilian. They were from Bethlehem, Judah. But they left there in the middle of a famine. When they got to Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And so they took wives of the children of Moab. People who didn't have a good reputation. The name of one of them was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They dwelt there about 10 years. And I'm not going to read you the rest of the story. You can read the whole book of Ruth in just a matter of minutes. But the story follows that Ruth, who is this Moabitess, fell in love with the God of her bitter mother-in-law. I'm saying she was bitter because the Bible says she was bitter. I can understand her bitterness. She left her husband in a place that was blessed of God and went to a place of a bad reputation and lost her husband and her two sons. That's just about as bad as it can get. But somehow in the midst of that, I'm not knocking Naomi too much because Naomi kept talking about God and talking about that homeland and that promised land. Mm. I've got a feeling she felt cheated. Yeah. 
After all, when you lose your husband and both your sons, it's a, it's a good chance that you feel cheated. Without spending a lot of time on the story, she decides after a while, I'm going home. And she tells bye to those two daughter-in-laws that she had. And Ruth tells her, Orpah goes ahead and stays. But Ruth says, I'm going where you are. I've heard you talk about your God. I don't want to live in Moab any longer. They may not have as much food and riches over there as we have had. But I want to head back with you. And if that's your God, that's going to be my God. There's some interesting story, but what's amazing is when they got back, must have been harvest time because Naomi tells Ruth, I want you to head down there to the fields of Boaz. He's one of our near kinsmen. And when you get there, they'll let you glean what the reapers are leaving behind. And she begins to glean, and Boaz takes notice and sees this beautiful young lady and the next thing you know, there's a love affair going on and they're married. And they have a child. <laughs> Praise God. You know, it's interesting because Boaz wasn't just a normal Israelite. In the Old Testament again, after that Moses is out of the way and the children of Israel are getting ready to head into the promised land. In other words, I'm doing a step back a little right now, okay? They sent some spies out. They came back and said, we can't handle it. So sometime later, they sent two men down and they, they began to, they checked it out and they wound up at a house, a place. I almost hate to say the word in here tonight, but the Bible says it. There was a harlot by the name of Rahab. And when those men of God got there, not for her purposes, not for her business, but because they were spying out the land, there was something about Rahab that said, uh, when y'all come back, I can feel something about your God that we don't have here. Jericho doesn't know the God that you know, but when you come back, don't get me like you're going to get the rest of them. I've heard from others about what your God does and how he stands beside you. And so it was that Rahab left when they took over Jericho and became a part of that group. By the way, she married an Israelite man and they had a son. His name was Boaz. <laughs> and Boaz married a girl who was from a place of a bad reputation. Her name was Ruth from Moab. But all you got to do is keep checking because they had a child and his name was Jesse. And Jesse had a child who most of you have heard of, King David, the psalmist fella. You see, Rahab was a harlot. Pardon me for saying it this way. She didn't have a good reputation in Jericho. 
And when society begins to push you aside and disdain you, it doesn't take long until you feel cheated. Even David kind of felt cheated. Oh, I know you don't really you don't really read about it as such, but he even his own father didn't recognize him as a possible king. Because when Samuel realized by the power of God, the word of God, that he was going to have to go anoint another king rather than it be Saul, he, God told him to go to the house of Jesse who had some sons. You know, it would have been very easy for God to have said, head down there to the house of Jesse and anoint David, the son, his son. But God didn't say, get down there and you're going to anoint one of his sons. So when he gets there, he tells Jesse, bring your sons in. He brings those others in, and he goes through the list, and God keeps saying, Samuel looks at them. Boy, that's a, mm, they look right to him. Every one of them looked like kingly material. And God kept saying, not the one, 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 not the one. And finally he says, uh, you may have another one. Because God told me, one of your sons and none of these. Oh, well, I've just got one, but he's just a shepherd. Just a shepherd. Book of Genesis chapter 134, it's talking about Joseph when he brought the children of Israel into Egypt to take care of them, etc. And, 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 and I'm just going to go to verse 34. I, I got others, but I'm hurrying. He said, now when you meet Pharaoh, and I'm passing through a lot of the story, when you meet him, if you can put, back, put that on there, Genesis 46 and 34, if you can do it. He said, you're going to tell him your servant's trade has been about cattle from youth, even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you can dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptian. What do you do, David? I'm a shepherd. They don't consider me kingly material. No reputation out there. Let me go forward a little bit. There's a guy named Goliath who's this huge giant. <laughs> My God. He comes against the armies of Israel with him and their armies. I did do some study on that. And it's said According to history, Bible doesn't say this either one way or the other. But if history is correct, Goliath had never lost a battle. Here he is, this huge man. And instead of being army against army, he says, bring out a man to fight. I think he was probably trying to challenge King Saul. That's again Cox's opinion. Because the scripture said King Saul was head and shoulders above every other man. So he pretty good size himself. In other words, we're going to have a heavyweight showdown and see who it is. Saul wasn't about to go. He didn't have any inclination to fight that guy. That guy was bigger than he was. But there's a guy named David whose brothers are in the army. <laughs> And dad says, go down and check my little shepherd boy and come back with a report. How's it going? And when David gets down there, oh, I love the story. <laughs> the guy of no reputation. The guy that sits out there on the hills and 
takes care of the sheep in the day and in the night if need be. It's David that walks up and says, how's it going? Sees them all not fighting. They don't know what's wrong until he hears that guy out there making fun of their God. It's David that says, I'll go fight him. Saul tried to put armor on him. He said, this doesn't fit. Well, I can understand why if you're hitting shoulders above everybody else. Yeah, I'm just cold with what I'm used to. Even Goliath, when David got there, go and read it in the book of 1 Samuel. Even Goliath had disdain for, you mean this is all you can send me to fight me? He starts in. I'll tell you what, my God is going to, he's going to destroy y'all's God. And when David heard that, he got cocky. I could say it this way. He got confident because he knew the God that he served. He looked at that giant. He said, I remember when even a lion came at me after my sheep. I took care of him. I remember when a bear came after me. I took care of him. Why am I worried about you? I'm going to come to you in the name of the Lord. No, he didn't have the reputation, but he had the strength and the power of Almighty God, and he became the victor. Oh, yeah. The difference was when David took on that challenge, this was a shepherd whose heart was after God. How do I know? Acts, the New Testament, chapter 13, verse 22, said this. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be the king, to whom after he gave them testimony... He said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who's going to fulfill my will. God said, even though he was just a shepherd of no reputation, he was after my heart. Kind of interesting. Again, it's not provable. But history says that Goliath was a grandson of a lady from Moab by the name of Arpa. And David was the grandson of a lady from Moab by the name of Ruth that said, where are you going? I want your God to be my God. You're never cheated when you put your power and your desires and all of your heart after the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is it any wonder why Psalms 23 attributed to David starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) He may seem like an abomination to the world, but no, no, David said, I know him. He is my shepherd. My God. Let me take you up to the season where we just have been. We still are in, actually. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Luke, the physician, he's recording the birth of Jesus. It's so amazing how he puts it. And then he, he, he doesn't go into the other description like some did, but he says it this way, verse 22. He said, when the days of her purification, talking about Mary, 
according to the law of Moses, were accomplished. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24 says, And to offer a sacrifice. Now this is not when they brought him to the temple for the time of circumcision. But this is after her purification. Offer a sacrifice in which is said of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if I take you back to where that law was written, and I'm going to do some skipping through just to hit the highlights because I'm watching time. But in Leviticus chapter 12 is what this is laid out and given to us in that Old Testament. It says it this way in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, if a woman conceives seed and born a man-child, she'll be unclean seven days, and according to the day separation from her, she'll be unclean, and the eighth day his, the flesh, his foreskin circumcision. And then, verse 4, they'll continue in the blood of her purifying 33 days. So what Luke is talking about is that right there, Okay. Verse 6, when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle's congregation under the priest. Who's going to offer it? Verse 7, to the Lord make an atonement for her and she'll be clean to the issue of blood. This is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. That's why they were there. Luke recorded. And then in verse 24 that I read to you, it said they gave a pair of turtle doves. But look at verse 8 of Leviticus 12. If she be not able to bring a lamb. In other words, if they're too poor and they can't afford a lamb. They bring two turtles or two young pigeons. Why are you making this point, Brother Cox? Luke, the physician, the one that was so specific, pointed out Joseph and Mary were so poor they couldn't even bring a lamb. So all they could bring. Yet our God, who could have had his son Jesus born of any virgin at any other time, at any other place, chose a virgin young lady by the name of Mary. The Spirit of the Holy Ghost overshadowed her and began to grow inside of her a little baby boy and told her ahead of time, you're going to call his name Jesus. He is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Not God, Junior. Not God in the second person, but God with us. <laughs> and he chose a poor couple who couldn't even afford a lamb. I'm going to go into the book of Cox Imagination right now, okay? So if you don't like what I'm going to say, just know it's Cox thinking. We know biblically 
They're on their way to pay taxes. And when they get to the end, they didn't have cell phones where they could call ahead and make a reservation. But when they get there, there's no room for them. I just wonder, this is Cox, okay? You don't have to buy this if you don't want to. I wonder if they'd been people of reputation. If maybe that innkeeper would have found another spot, put a bed out. But after all, this is just a poor young couple. Well, I got a, I got a stable out there. God's looking down. If I can say it that way, God's a spirit, but he's looking down and saying a stable's perfect. It's just right. Tonight's going to be the night. There's going to be some wise men headed this way. We read about them. But it's going to be in the middle of the night when that little baby is going to be born. And I'm going to work on some shepherds who are not too far away to head over there to that stable to see God robed in flesh be born in this world and laid in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, if you will. Not a hotel, not a hospital, but our God came. <laughs> Woo! My God, could it be that God chose that because he knew the world was looking for a reputation of some great king, and instead he came the way he did. That's why when Matthew, the first author of the New Testament, the one we read of first, he starts out Matthew 1 and verse 1 like this. The book of the generation, Jesus Christ. He didn't say here the son of Joseph, the son of Mary. He goes back. To that boy whose grandma was a Moabitess, whose great-grandma was a harlot, but who was a man after God's own heart. I'm going to tell you who he is. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Don't get it wrong. I want you to know who this one is. Whoo, shut up. It's working on me big time. I'm sorry. I want you to recognize that he came through no reputation. He was born of them. He goes on and listed Salmon down in verse 5. He begat Boaz of Rahab and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. He gets him in there. And then Obed begat Jesse and Jesse begat David. He doesn't miss the fact that there's a Ruth and a Rahab that's in the lineage. Now Luke gives you some of that background too. And he talks about Boaz, etc. But he never mentions Ruth or Rahab. But Matthew did. I'm of the opinion, the reason why. Matthew was a tax collector. 
some of the most hated men of that day. <laughs> but when he met Jesus, before he's writing this, Matthew says, I may be a tax collector. I don't have a reputation of being good man. I probably have cheated people. You say, how do you know that, Brother Cox? Check out the little short guy in the sycamore tree by the name of Zacchaeus. He's the one that made some of that kind of declaration as a tax collector. But oh, I want you to know, I found somebody of no reputation, but I like who I have found. I'm not going to be cheated. I'm going to quit being a tax collector. I'm going to show up and be one of his. I'm going to follow him. Don't cheat yourself. Philippians chapter 2 says this, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Watch what verse 7 says. But he made of himself no reputation. Instead of taking on the form of a king, he took on the form of a servant. Instead of taking on the reputation of a God, if you will, he was made in the likeness of men. Isaiah had prophesied in that Old Testament in chapter 53. And Isaiah said in verse 2 of chapter 53, He hath no form, nor comeliness. We see him, there's no beauty. That you'll desire him. Verse 3, he's despised and rejected of men. Doesn't have the greatest reputation out there. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Not somebody who you would normally say, that's my hero. But I hope you're getting where I'm coming from right now as I'm getting close to the end here. I want you to hear me when I'm saying it this way. God doesn't care about reputation. He just doesn't want you to be cheated. I know that every one of us, me included, enjoy what money can buy. Hello. I wouldn't take anything from my parents because they raised me not by telling me, but by example to recognize that money is not the number one important thing in life. They raised me not by telling me, but by exampling that your reputation is greater amongst God's people than it is in the world. Some of you may not be aware of it, but there was a time back when I finished college I graduated on May the 22nd of 1976 from college, Southeastern Louisiana University. My daddy was pastor in Bogalusia. I still live at home. I was only 20 years old. Graduated. I'd already picked up a job. In fact, I'd picked up two jobs. and One of them was going to be in New Orleans, and I'm glad I didn't take it because I didn't like New Orleans. Found a job right here in Bogalusa, working for a CPA firm. 
I began working there and then got my CPA certificate a little later. I was making good money for that day and time. Single young man. Had me a nice, almost new car. Everything was going great. And yet I felt this pounding in me. I'll never forget coming home from church one night. I thought about not being cheated. I'd been burdened down in my spirit. And I walked into my room, to the room where my mama was. I said, Mama, I'm a little worried about myself. She said, well, what's wrong, son? I said, I don't want to get so caught up with making money that I'll miss out on what God's got. As long as you keep that attitude, you're going to be all right. God, let me prove it. October 1979, the 20th, I married the most beautiful young lady. We hadn't been married maybe a month. I'm making good money. I'm a CPA. And not saying it's wrong, but my bosses were pleased with my work. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Kevin, before next tax season, in my mind, that was the first of February. You're not going to be working here. So me and my ways, I just told my wife everything. I said, Lisa, the Lord spoke to me. She thought she had married a guy who was going to be able to support her real good. So I'm not going to be working here by tax season time. Shortly after that, I had a fellow call me, another CPA. From a, I'd have had to move if I'd have gone to work for that man distance away. He said, I've, I've heard of your reputation as a CPA, and I want to hire you. And he named a salary that was double of what I was making right then. And I wasn't hurting. But when he said, I'll double it, I'm like, wow, that sounds good. After all, I did hear God say, you're not going to be working here. But I couldn't feel what I wanted to feel. And then another man called me that went to church. That guy was an apostolic. And another guy called me. He said, I want to hire you. Get everything you can out of that guy. And then if I can afford to, I'm going to give you more and hire you to work for me. I'm like, wow. He said, two. And yet I couldn't understand. I couldn't feel like that was a thing to do. It got so real to me again. Last, this past week as I was up visiting with my father-in-law who lives in Harrison, Arkansas now. But at that time he pastored in Sedalia, Missouri. And on a Sunday morning, Christmas time, not Christmas day, but on a Christmas morning. I mean a Sunday morning, 1979, somewhere around Christmas time. We were at church. My brother-in-law, <clears throat> I were scheduled to preach. I was going to preach that night and my brother-in-law that morning. He had just accepted the church to pastor in Lumberton, North Carolina. But a friend of his called. We'd gone to church early. My brother-in-law and father-in-law were in the office, and I had decided I was going to go outside in the sanctuary, and I was walking around that sanctuary. I literally was laying hands on every pew, praying, God, let somebody be touched today. Let somebody be touched today. Jesus, 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 let it happen. It's Christmas time. Show them who you are again. 
And I was way back in that far corner of the church. The doors that went to the office were all wet, diagonal from it. My brother-in-law stepped out, and he was just having fun. He says, hey, Kevin, I got your church to go pastor. And when he said that, it was as if somebody took hot oil and just poured oil down over me. I said, where is it, Roy? And what it was, a man had just called him at the office that morning at the church office to let him know there was a church in Weaver, Hitchcock, Florida open. He told him, he said, I'm not interested. I know it's the will of God for me to go to Lumberton, North Carolina. And when he said it, I knew it was God. I said, Roy, how do you even say it and spell it? He, I wrote it down. If we'd had cell phones, I'd have called him that day, but I waited until I got home. And I called the man that was in charge, Brother Alan Crapper. I said, this is what God's dealing with me to come. Can I come? I shortened it down. We went to preach. Me, 23. My wife, 18. Newlyweds, less than three months. And we go preach. And we pulled into that town on that Sunday morning. We're going to preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then they're going to vote on us and others. And she looked and saw it was a real pretty building. Brother Crabtree was good with, with shrubs and stuff. My, it was the nicest-looking place in town right on Main Street. And she said, you can forget this. They ain't going to let you for this for your first church. But I knew what I'd heard. We preached. We left for home because I had to be at work the next morning. Had a seven-and-a-half-hour drive home. On the way home after Sunday night church, she said, uh, well, what do you think? And I said, I'm not trying to be egotistical. But if they don't elect us as pastor, they're going to miss the will of God. Now, I was district superintendent. I'll be honest with you. The thing that used to just grind at me as a preacher called me up and say, hey, is there any good churches open that pays good? I wanted to spit at them through the phone, but I never did. I was always kind, tried to be. Because I, I, I have told them, you need to seek the will of God. They called me, they called me, they had an election the next week and they voted us in as pastor. Called me up. I didn't ask and had no clue how much I was going to get as pastor. I just knew it was the will of God. I'm not trying to brag, I'm trying to give you a story that's so special to me. I didn't have any kind of reputation. But God knew how to orchestrate. And so when I got over there to meet with the pastor to go over the stuff, and in other words, he's handed it over to me. I said, approximately how much am I going to make next year? He said, well, last year I got 14000 but the man that paid 4000 in tithes left right at the end of the year. So you're not going to get much, maybe 10000 That was less than half of what I was making, and I'd been offered double that. I'll never forget when I went back in after they, after they told me <laughs> that I was elected pastor. I went in the next morning, Thursday morning. I told them I worked for partnership. I told first boss, I said, I, I, I'm going to be leaving. they like, oh, you can't leave now. I said, oh, yeah, why? I said, well, I'm going to pastor a church. And they are both accountants. They think money. First thing both of them said after I told them that is, well, how much are you going to make? And I told them what I just told you. Both of them said the same words, not knowing the other one said, you'll starve to death. All I can say is look at me. 
I wasn't cheated by going for less than half. Our first year, we didn't want to turn the heat on that come that winter time because we couldn't afford much electric. I still will tell you, I was not cheated by following the will of God. I have been blessed more than this. I never followed the will of God because of money. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just trying to tell you, don't get cheated. It's more than money. It's more than reputation. But the greatest thing you'll ever do is say, God, I'm yours. I'm sold out. And whatever I can do, I'll do it for your kingdom. Come up here, the music. I've been going too long. I'm going to close just a second. I got to take you way, way back. 1933. The heart of the Great Depression, United States of America. When my father, and so you're going to figure out the end of the story, and I don't mind, who was four years old, died. His mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother had got into the church, but my grandpa Cox was still a heathen. He was a womanizer. He smoked. He drank. He partied. Thought he and he was a good-looking man, fine, great guy, but he didn't serve God. And his four-year-old child, in the heart of the Great Depression, is dead. And grandpa had been to church and knew what he ought to do. And he went down to the basement of that apartment house they were living in where he could be all alone. And he started repenting. Repenting. And repenting of his sin. After nearly four hours of Grandpa down there repenting, and asking God to bring his son back to life. Who the medical people that already showed up pronounced him dead. They're waiting for the funeral home to come pick that body up. An old preacher. Wasn't old at that time, but a preacher who was on the 21st day of a 40-day fast with no food. He was so weak that when he got to the house, he couldn't walk up the stairs to where they had laid my father on the bed. But he was able to crawl on hands and knees to get up those steps. And he walked in there and laid hands on my daddy and he prayed the prayer of faith. And my daddy raised up after being dead four hours and looked at his mama and said, I'm hungry, mama. A little four-year-old boy, can I have something to eat? Don't cheat yourself by living in the world. If it takes you four hours like it took my grandpa to repent, then devote four hours. I don't know anybody else that's ever taken that long. But I'll tell you this, grandpa lived for God the rest of his life. 
and died ready to meet the Lord. A man of faith, a man of power. He didn't cheat himself. I see people all the time. Y'all can stand up, Doug. I see people all the time come to church and they leave just like they came in. Some of them come because society says it's a good thing to do. Some of them come because they follow what their wife asked them to do. Some situations or other wives coming because spouse. I was at POA this morning. I saw just such as that one lady that come because her husband's in. But she don't want to give up the world. I looked and I said to myself, you're cheating yourself. Because <laughs> what does this world have to offer that God doesn't have so much better? We sang that song a while ago. I don't know the name of it, but I like what it was saying. It was saying that when you come here, you can be healed. That when you come here, you can be delivered. Say, how can that happen? Because when you avail yourself of the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, everything else is second place. Anybody here tonight been cheating yourself? One of the worst things in the world. I can't stand it when somebody else cheats me. But if I cheat myself, that's even worse. Because you've cheated yourself out of the greatest blessings of God. Let's lift our hands right now. I want this whole church just to love him right now. Oh, I think this is as much for me tonight as anybody else. <laughs> Lord, I want to cheat myself out of the great things that you've got coming our way in 2024. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I wonder, is this altar open right now? Is there anybody who want to make your way up here right now and say, yes, Brother Cox? I want all of him. I want everything that he has.